Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. In the summer of 2022, Kentucky Humanities had the opportunity to co-produce a special podcast entitled Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. Through hours of interviews and extensive research, University of Louisville grad student Katie Cross Gibson brings the listener an intimate portrait of one of the most influential African-American critics, authors, and feminists of our time. In this mini-series, you'll find a thorough examination of the life Bell Hooks lived, reflections from her friends and colleagues, and the thoughts and philosophy which guided her for 69 years. You know, I think when you grew up, you grew up like I grew up. My family was the only black family in this place that I grew up, and so from kindergarten all the way through high school, there were three black girls in class, me and my two cousins. And so I think that I grew up with this notion that I was strange, that I didn't fit in, that I was weird because I was quiet and stayed to myself and read books all the time and wanted to write. And I think that Belle was the preeminent model for that little black girls in Kentucky looking back. And I would have been a completely different person if I had seen a Bell Hooks lecture or Bell Hooks talk when I was in high school or in middle school. For the longest time, I didn't believe that there was like room for me in this world, that I was an anomaly or that I was strange and weird. Bell was very good at acknowledging what she wanted in that moment and actualizing it even if it required some form of adaptation, shape-shifting and changing in the moment. She wasn't wed to a performance of who Bell Hooks should be. She was more wed to the authenticity of who she was in the moment. That is also very important and very rare, very, very rare. And it's another type of intellectual engagement. Hello. I'm Katie Cross Gibson, and this is episode two of Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. Episode one touched on the early life of Gloria Jean Watkins, better known by her nom de plume, Bell Hooks. This episode, you'll hear nine of Bell's loved ones talk more about Bell as they knew and continue to know her, especially after Bell moved back to her home state. They tell stories about friendship and support, her favorite and least favorite pieces of pop culture, sharing meals, how Belle felt about Appalachia and Kentucky, her principles, and how Belle truly made an impact on the world. Who knows, you might even hear some juicy gossip too. First things first though, introductions. I am Crystal Wilkinson. I am uh, Kentucky's Poet Laureate, and I'm also a professor at the University of Kentucky in literature and creative writing. I have worked at several universities over the past couple of decades, uh, including Indiana University, Moorhead State University, and of course, Berea College, where I knew Belle at Berea College. Belle and I met in, this is going to age us both, but in 1993, I had known her work. And as a burgeoning uh, Kentucky writer, I was enamored with her work as a burgeoning womanist, as a burgeoning feminist with um, three small children. And I had been so lucky to sort of fall into this wonderful cadre of women, of Black women here in in Lexington. So in this group was myself, Kelly Norman Ellis, who I believe Kelly was a graduate student at the time at UK, 
Nikki Finney, who was teaching at UK at the time, Dondra Sisney Gibbons, who was an undergraduate at the time, and several women, Black women from the community, including Joan Brannon, who's a filmmaker and a drummer, and Donna Johnson, who is just sort of a, a bibliophile, extraordinary feminist jewelry maker. And so we had all sort of began to meet and just talk about our lives and talk about trying to write and how to do it, in my case, with small children. I was coming out of an abusive relationship and trying my best to figure out what my next moves were. I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a liberated woman, to be a liberated Black woman. So we decided as a group to go to the Kentucky Women Writers Conference, and Bell was headlining that year. And I had just bought Sisters of the Yam and had been reading through that book and was carrying that book around, sort of like the Bible. And um, I heard Bell speak at the Robert H. Williams Center, and we all sort of crowded into the Robert H. Williams Center. I had my twin girls with me, and they were sitting on the floor, like at Bell's feet, and I was sitting there, and it was hot. And you know, it was just like going to church. When she talked about feminism, that idiom of feminism being for everybody was so alive and so true in that room. There were postal workers, there were women who worked in sanitation, women who were cleaning floors for a living and academics as well, all in the same room. And she talked about feminism in such a way that made it accessible to all of us from the academics to the rest of us, you know, and and what we were doing. And so we all sort of walked out there out of that room being sort of wide-eyed and renewed. And I saw Belle at that time as my hero. You know, I knew that she was from Kentucky. I knew that she was from rural Kentucky at that point. And it, it made my back straighter. I'm always talking about what makes my spine straighter, but it made my spine straighter to know that she was from a small town in Kentucky. So later on, Uh, she invited several of us to her hotel room and we were expecting, you know, a lecture, right? So we had this intellectual, this wonderful, vibrant woman in front of us. And we thought, okay, this is going to continue. We're going to get, you know, more of this. And uh, as we were sitting there, she, she was just like one of our girlfriends. She was like, okay, so who are y'all dating? What are y'all doing? And we were like, oh, she's also a real woman. (laughs) And so that was my first introduction to Belle. And then years later, and especially by the time she had had come to Berea, uh, we became friends. And we never really talked about that early time of when I had originally uh, met her and how Of course, she was always iconic, even still, but how went from this sort of um, sitting at her feet to being her friend. We were friends, uh, you know, for almost half a century. We went through, I mean, you're too young to know how many diversions, you know, we took, how many shared moments, how many arguments, you know, it's a lifetime. Of course, the world was so different when we first met. I mean, there were just all these conference. I mean, we never lived in the same place. I mean, I don't know if we could have been friends the way we were today, because we just went to all these movement meetings and conferences, and we would see each other pretty often and then talk on the phone. You're hearing from Bell's longtime comrade, Zila Eisenstein. I am someone who has worked uh, with feminist anti-racist ideas for my entire grown-up life. I grew up in the civil rights movement, having parents who were communists. And me and my sisters would spend Saturdays picketing Woolworths and being spit on. So that kind of gave me, I think, just a good base for becoming friends with Belle. You know, I was white, but I was brought up Um, And the people who loved me the best as I was growing up were Black people in the civil rights movement. So 
um, where my trust was and who had given me the courage to be who I have become. We're basically Black people in the struggle for civil rights with a few white people who were communists. So, you know, that's important. And then, of course, I was part of the women's movement when I wrote my dissertation on um, the importance of Marxism for feminism. And then since then, all of my 12 books are different iterations on the female body in the different struggles of power. And with always the issue of the way that the female body is raced and that the black female body is, you know, you always should look for it in the struggle of power because it's there. It's just not usually in view. So again, you know, you're just seeing the ideational history that is my friendship to Bell. Um, for the last three years, I have um, been very involved in uh, the multiple pandemics that have accompanied COVID, which are racism and sexism <laughs> and classism. So again, you know, COVID has, you know, really both uncovered and exacerbated all of these inequities. Hi, my name is Beth Fagan, and I teach at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. I am a lecturer in the general education program, and I teach primarily first and second year students uh, writing. I teach composition, and I teach Bell Hooks's work in my in my classes. So, in addition to being her neighbor and friend, I'm fortunate enough to be able to take my students to the archives to look at her personal papers, for example, in conjunction with them reading her work. I first read Bell Hooks when I was an undergrad back in the early 1990s uh, at Bryn Mawr College. When her book, Teaching to Transgress, came out in the mid-90s, I read it as a new work, and it blew my mind. I was... <laughs> so transformed by this book because I had been thinking very intentionally about education ever since middle school. And so when I encountered Bell Hooks as an undergrad and she spoke so openly about education as the practice of freedom and the excitement and the ecstasy of the classroom and just the love of learning and the determination to keep that love alive, it really resonated with me because so much of what I had seen in public school, so much of what I had seen as a youngster and then again in high school was disaffection and people just not being enlivened in the classroom environment. They were there because they had to be. They had to teach. They had to be the student. It was compulsory. It was not joyful. And it definitely was not liberatory. Encountering Bell affirmed a lot of the things that I already had been thinking about teaching and learning and just opened my mind to so much more in terms of not just the praxis of teaching and learning, but the actual ideas too, that, you know, feminist ideas and ideas of anti-colonialism and anti-racism and sort of thinking in a meta way about who gets to speak and how are they heard or not heard. And how do we co-create classroom culture or stifle it? Her book, from the time I was quite young, sort of entered so deeply into my heart and into the formation of my personality that now as an adult, it's actually a little hard to talk about it because it shaped me <laughs> so fundamentally that it's hard to separate what I learned from Bell as a young person and who I am now. It is not an exaggeration to say that it not only changed my life, it helped to make my life. The first recollection I have of having a conversation with Belle was when I was walking to campus to attend a book discussion group led by her about teaching to transgress. This was in the fall of 2014. And there she was standing on the corner of Jackson and Forest Street, right in front of her house. And she said, hey, give me a ride. I'm trying to get to campus. 
And I said, well, I don't have the car. My husband has the car right now. I'm walking to campus to hear you. (laughs) And she said, well, you're a white girl. Stick your thumb out. Maybe if we hitchhike, someone will pick us up. (laughs) And as we stood there on the corner of the street with our thumbs out, we talked for a few minutes. And I just will always remember standing there talking with bell hooks and thinking, my God, I'm hitchhiking with bell hooks. (laughs) My name is Dr. Damaris B. Hill. I am a professor at the University of Kentucky with the departments of English, creative writing, and African-American and Africana studies program. I hang out in a lot of other areas, such as like digital scholarship, uh, women and gender studies, American studies, and others. I think I first encountered Belle in my undergraduate studies. I attended an HBCU, which is a historically Black college and university, Morgan State University. And even though I did not take per se, any classes that were um, designated women and gender studies or designated African-American literature. All of the courses there were interdisciplinary and really concentrated on acknowledging writers within their uh, literary period, regardless of uh, race, gender, or sexual orientation. So we did not use identity as a primary marker of separating um, what we consider to be literature, but we use time period and important voices in that period. Oftentimes it was very much so acknowledging the canon, countering the canon and talking back to the canon. And I think my professors worked very hard to make that possible. The first reading of Bells that I embraced, I would say very seriously, intellectually serious, because like I want to be very clear and start talking about this, right? I probably was always a smart girl. I was not always a very dedicated student. If I found something that intensely interests me, I embraced it. If I didn't, I completely um, disregarded it. And there Being an adventurous young woman, there were plenty distractions. When I read Bell Hook's book, Outlaw Culture, for the first time, I think my head exploded. I was in it, right? And um, from there, I read Black Looks and was equally engaged because her writing didn't require a leap of historical faith. It engaged very much with the world that I knew and I understood. And so when she's critiquing Madonna about her invoking of white supremacy, patriarchal, heteronormative kinds of exploitations under the guise of feminism, I not only recognized that as an intellectual argument, but felt it in my body because I was a dance culture girl. And so the ways that Madonna was as present as other artists that I appreciated, like Whitney Houston, Tiffany English, Cece Peniston, they were all kind of present, not only in my intellectual life because of Belle, but also in my pop culture, social life and and in my body, because that was a space where I expressed myself intellectually, but strategically also danced and moved and interacted with the DJ and the the culture of the space, I began visiting the Bell Hooks Institute at Berea for some of the programming that she had there. And like Bell understands interdisciplinary scholarship, not from an intellectual level, but as she discusses in her works from a personal level and uses that recognition to build community. So all of the conversations that were happening at the Bell Hooks Institute were relatively intimate conversations, even if they were comprised of groups larger than 30, because Bell Hooks really tried to facilitate that type of community in every space that she entered. She thought conversations 
were far more powerful than papers and lectures because the conversation and the personal connection would be the point where cultural change was ignited and activated. And I'm grateful to see that strategy for cultural healing and change take place, to observe it and to learn from it. But it was there at the Bell Hooks Institute that um, I was introduced to her. And just like with everyone, Bell can become, if she enjoys you, quick friends. And she began inviting me to her home with usually it would be a group of women, women that are also girls, fun, loving, adventurous women. And then, you know, sometimes it would just be her and I at her house laughing and joking and talking about serious things and fun things in life and imagining better futures. I am Crescent Molly Mason, and I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Haverford College, um, which is a college right outside of Philadelphia. I do work in existentialism and feminist philosophy and Africana philosophy. I've been on sabbatical working on a manuscript, so I'm working on um, my first single author manuscript. It's called On Ambiguity. And so I've been writing and thinking about not only Bell, um, but some of the other sort of philosophers that I work with, um, Simone de Beauvoir and Maria Lugones. And speaking of Simone de Beauvoir, I'm also currently the president of the International Simone de Beauvoir Society. I studied philosophy initially in undergrad at Spelman College in Atlanta. And that was my first introduction to Bell's work. And so as Spelman College is a historically Black um, women's college, and they had like a book list of, of books that we were supposed to read to prepare us to come to Spelman. And Bell's book, I think it was Feminism is for Everybody, was one of the books that was on the list. And so, you know, I took this book with these other books with me to college and kind of skimmed it, but I wasn't a feminist in college. <laughs> so I was like, a lot of this stuff was sort of like kind of really over my head and I wasn't kind of into it. So I kind of skimmed Bell's work more so than um, really engaged it at that point. But that was my first kind of introduction. That same year, All About Love was published around the year that I graduated from college. I was always interested in love and I found various resources in various different places, but I was just always searching for texts about love and to find texts about love from black women. So I had a boyfriend at the time and he went to the like local bookstore and bought me all about love. And I read it and it was just like, I was just so happy. I found so few, I thought really rich resources to think about love that I, I just, it, it meant very much to me. So that was kind of like a personal, like it reintroduction to her thought. Now I'm really seriously seeing, more seriously seeing what she's like, how important that work is, how important her work is. And so I used it in my dissertation work and I was in Philadelphia at the time. After I finished my dissertation, I mean, I just finished my dissertation because I'm like, I'm tired of being broke. So I ended as like, I have to get a job. That was the point. Applied for a lot of jobs. Um, I also got a certificate in women's studies in graduate school. So I applied for a lot of jobs in philosophy and I applied for a job at Berea. There was an opening in women's studies, women and gender studies program at the time. Um, what is now the Bell Hook Center was then the women and gender studies program at Berea. And so I applied to the women and gender studies program. Having not really understood Bell's connection to Berea College. So I applied to this random place, I thought, because it, there was a job opening and also not in my field. You know, I was in philosophy. And so I applied in women's studies. I was, wasn't sure, you know, if they were going to take me seriously. I get the first round. There's this, an interview. And I remember I put my little suit on, like, you know, my half suit on. And I'm going to the interview and I turn on the screen and there's Bell like. <laughs> Oh no, like, oh no, I'm okay. All right, this is fine. You know, I can do this. So, you know, everyone's asking me questions and she's not really, I can't, I can't tell what's going on, how she's responding. And finally they sort of turn it over to Belle and she asks me one question, which is like, what is the meaning of feminism is for everybody? 
you know, but I was like, okay, I have an, I have my answer, right? So whatever answer I managed to pull out of myself, I pulled it out, closed the Skype interview, like, oh my gosh, I'm sure that was a bomb. I can't believe it. Got a call back and say, come to Berea for this interview. I come for a sort of flying interview. They have me have lunch with her. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. So I'm having lunch. I'm having lunch with her. She's very nice. She's funny, everything. And I just, I'm kind of like, I can't believe this is happening. They end up offering me the job, and that was in 2015. I'm Dr. Lynn Strong-Leak. I'm the current provost at Haverford College. Um, I did serve for a year as the provost at Berea before leaving for Haverford. I was uh, at Berea for 18 years. Um, that's where I met Bill. I'm a HBCU grad, North Carolina Central Go Eagles, um, Michigan State, PhD. And um, I had one job before I came to Berea. I lived in um, Florida for uh, about six years. And I was at Florida International in the English department before going to Berea. So in graduate school, um, I encountered her work at Michigan State. I was trying to think of what I first read. I think it was Beauty Lay Bear, but I can't be absolutely sure. And definitely Feminist Theory from Marginal Center. So those would have been the earliest Bell Hooks works I read. And I knew from reading both of them that she was both fierce, especially in Feminist Theory, and then loving in um, Beauty Lay Bear. I met her in Berea in 2004. I had heard her speak before, but I had not met her. And so she came and gave her talk. And then she actually came back to my classroom. And I had really, a, it was a powerful moment for me because for multiple reasons, um, I think, you know, because of the fierceness of her writing, you don't expect her to have this tiny little voice. <laughs> so she came back to my class and she was talking about her book on Black men and patriarchy. And there was a moment when she had talked about how, um, you know, how people experience men in patriarchy and how for many people who have lived in patriarchal households that they are sometimes relieved when the patriarch is no longer there by whatever means, you know, jail or divorce or death even. And it was just a powerful moment because when we got back to the class that day, several of my students said I was relieved when my father died. So it was really just a powerful moment. Um, and that's, I think, the power of her work is that she speaks these really hard truths that people don't want to think about and definitely don't want to speak. And for those students to hear that from her and to read her work and to understand that they weren't alone or they weren't bad people because they felt like that, that they were just really, they were relieved when this person, domineering, abusive person was gone. So that's where we connected, I think, in that in that moment, because we talked after that for hours. I'm Chad Berry. I am Vice President for Alumni Communications and Philanthropy at Berea College. I also hold still faculty ranks. I am the Good Professor in Appalachian Studies and also a Professor of History. And prior to this position, I was uh, the academic vice president, dean of the faculty for eight years. And prior to that, I was director of the Loyal Jones Appalachian Center at Berea. When I was director of the Appalachian Center, one of the hallmark signature events that uh, we oversaw was leading the Appalachian Seminar and Tour. And this was a longstanding seminar and tour faculty and staff development piece that had been operated at Berea since the 1950s. And that was designed to be a way for new faculty and staff in particular, but all Bereans to get to know the place where so many of our students come so they could connect their work to Appalachia and Appalachia to their own understanding in terms of the home of so many of our students. So this is a week long tour. It was my first year running it. You can imagine it was uh, quite a feat and an endeavor. And so we were getting ready to board the bus at 7.30 a.m. on the first day after two days of classroom discussion and reading and uh, such seminar. And the bus was to meet us at the Boone Tavern Hotel. And 
I was there early, of course, making sure everything was there. And out bursts this black woman from the Boone Tavern and who said something like in her high-pitched voice, hey, are you Chad Berry? And I said, yes. And then, of course, I knew who it was, but I hadn't met Belle yet. She said, I'm Belle Hooks, and I'm going along on this tour. Completely out of the blue. There's reservations. There's all kinds of enrollment and all this stuff. And I thought, I, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And she said, but I, I want you to know that I do have a friend who's going to be in a chase vehicle in case I get tired or get sick of it or I don't like it and he can take me back home. I said, okay, come on, get on board. So she got on board and I was just sort of in amazement. And I happened to run back to my office and pick up my copy of Bone Black because I thought it might be really neat to have Belle read particular passages along the way. And she did that. It was very moving and rich. And after I think a day or so, she sent her friend Eugene home and said, no, I think I'm going to be fine. I'm enjoying this. Near the end of the trip, we were in West Virginia and it was a Sunday. And what I thought I would do is um, design an experience that would be typical in many parts of Appalachia for families and extended families to get together Sunday afternoon. And here was a family who did that. And they had managed to cobble together uh, something of a cabin that would be a place to gather. The only way to get there was on a four-wheeler. So we had arranged for all the young boys and young men and some young women to bring their four-wheelers down at the public library and pick us up. And Belle had no idea what was in store. I didn't tell anybody about the four-wheeler experience because I didn't want to cause anxiety. So she got, I said, Belle, you're off the bus. So get on the, get on this red four-wheeler here. And it was probably driven by a 15-year-old white kid from the mountains from McDowell County. And he had no, he had no shirt on. Uh, it was summer. He had no idea who this person was. And he turned around as she got on, which said a lot about her trust. And he looked, turned around at her and said, okay, hold on. And she held on and grabbed him around the waist and turned around and looked at me and her eyes were so big and off they went straight up, you know, almost a 45 degree angle to get there, but she had so much fun. I'm Silas House. I am the author of seven novels, a book of creative nonfiction, several plays. I'm the NEH Chair of Appalachian Studies at Berea College. I teach uh, creative writing and literature there. I also teach in the uh, MFA program at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Creative Writing at Spalding University in Louisville. I publish a lot of essays and music journalism and things of that nature in, in magazines all over the place. I, I first encountered Bell's work in grad school, and that would have been her critical theory that I read first. And it just really opened my mind in so many ways in thinking about race and gender and sexuality, the history of feminism. That intersectionality really spoke to me and really taught me something brand new. I loved the way she talked about the personal as the political and how we couldn't really separate those. That made a lot of sense to me. I first met her because we both worked at Berea College, and I was introduced to her at a cocktail party that a colleague was having. He had put on this cocktail party sort of with the intention of bringing me and Belle and a couple of other people together. And, you know, as soon as I met her, we just had an instant connection on lots of levels. She loved my accent. She said it sounded like home to her. On the topic of home, Belle loved her home commonwealth and found home in Appalachia. But her thoughts and feelings about home were, as you might imagine, pretty complex. For her, Appalachia wasn't a bounded thing. Technically, Madison County is an Appalachian Regional Commission County, but so many people in Appalachia who study Appalachia 
think about the heart of Appalachia or they think about where Appalachia is and where it isn't, Bell always thought about what Appalachia was and what it could be and what it should not be. So for Bell, Appalachia was more conceptual. I have always had a real issue with Appalachia being vilified and I've had just as much of a a dislike to see it romanticized. And so I think Bell really, when she talked about Kentucky and when she wrote about Kentucky or Appalachia, she always zoomed, zoomed in on those complexities, what was good about it, but also what was bad about it. And I think that she felt it was really important to talk about, to critique it and to tease out what what we need to make better and not just talk about all the good stuff that so many gatekeepers from the region want to talk about. Especially growing up in a predominantly Black community in the 50s and felt a sense of safety and love and protection. She loved the beauty of Appalachia. She often, she would be... Um, I won't say angry, but um, the, the notions of Appalachian people, um, you know, um, were demeaning and demoralizing. And she, you know, pushed back against all those notions of what it meant to be Appalachian. She wanted people to know that Black people were in Appalachia, have been in Appalachia for a very long time. It's really all a, both an embrace and also challenging where you know, Appalachia failed her as a person of color, right? I mean, so it's it's all of those. It's recognizing both, you know, the beauty and the complexity, challenging the extractive culture that we know, you know, is the reason why the floods are happening right now, right? I mean, it's, it is, you know, mountaintop removal that's causing that. So just really trying to push back on all those notions of what it means to be Appalachian and embracing, you know, all the parts, all the complex parts of herself, which included being Appalachian. She wanted people to know that genius came from Kentucky, you know, that radical genius came from Kentucky, that she was raised here in the hills, was a daughter of Appalachia. She had such tender feelings for her family and for her hometown, her home community and her home county. She often cried when she talked about her childhood and growing up and cried in a nostalgic, loving way. Like she cried for the parts of it that she loved that no longer existed. And at the same time, you know, I would see her anger and her hurt from the racism she experienced as a child as well. Crystal Wilkinson. One of the things I remember is her talking so fondly about and how important the land itself was to her. And I think that's something that we often forget about, particularly uh, when it comes to Black women, Black people, period. And and I think particularly Black women and, and, and nature's capacity to heal. So we talked about missing trees and lakes and streams and, you know, sort of the wildness of nature. Uh, in its capacity to heal. That's one one way we talked about Kentucky. And then we talked about it a lot in sort of an ancestral way. You know, my family has been in Kentucky for many, many generations, as had hers. And uh, we talked about our old people who are no longer here and our ancestors and what lessons we've learned from our ancestors. And um, she particularly talked about her parents, yes, but she also talked about her grandmother and her grandfather and those sort of old ways of life, of, of being more in touch with nature and having crops and gardens and working in tobacco and those kinds of things. In 2004, Bell made the decision to return to Kentucky, and she made her home in Berea and at Berea College during the final decades of her life. When she moved here, they knew who she was and what she was going to bring. Bell's younger sister, Gwenda Motley. Whereas we're her family, we know her as Gloria. We know her as our sister. And although we knew she 
happy ear of the world. We still did not connect the dots when she first came here. We didn't connect the dots that, oh, wow, Berea is getting bell hooks. And she is bringing all of her fame and everything to Berea, to Ken- back to Kentucky. We didn't connect the dots with that. And it was not until she had been here a while and, you know, our visiting and seeing what she was doing and working on leaving the legacy and opening the Bell Hooks Institute. Belonging is one of the texts that she writes about her relationships sort of to Appalachia and to the community in Berea. And one of the things about Berea, I should say, Berea was the first interracial co-educational Um, college in the South. And currently the students there um, is tuition-free college and the students there um, work at the college. And because of its sort of history, Berea College, again, was built and intended and founded to be interracial and co-educational. And the town sort of built around Berea. And so the Berea, the town is sort of an offshoot of Berea, the college. And I think Belle was drawn to this. I think she was drawn, like I said, to her whole kind of orientation toward the Institute. How do we put people in the place to be together, to work through and their differences? And I think she found the history of Berea and the town of Berea to be a place where she thought that could happen and that she could kind of make that happen, like a beloved community. Peggy was the chairwoman in gender studies. We, uh, Belle had visited Berea prior and she indicated that she was ready to come home. Um, both of her parents were in decline at that time and she was really, she wanted to be closer to family, um, but she also wanted to be in a place that she felt had similar sort of politics and understandings. And so Berea was really the only place in Kentucky she felt had those, had her left leanings. Um, it was a conscious decision for Belle to come home. It was a conscious decision for her to come to Berea uh, and Peggy and I, but Peggy mainly um, <laughs> helped to facilitate conversations with the then president, uh, Larry Shin and, and the provost, uh, Stephanie Browner. Peggy was instrumental in getting me here and then getting Belle here just a couple of years later. She always loved Kentucky. Zila Eisenstein. And then I think she was really looking for a place. I mean, I know she was looking for a place that would allow her. I mean, the academy is is not a welcoming place for 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 most people, you know, no matter what you stand for. She, of course, was part of the academy for a short while and found that very difficult, but also it is a location as, you know, an institution where now her ideas and writings, I mean, there is a place for people to come and share and learn from what she did. I think she trusted Berea to do that. I think what I recall and what we talked about was that, you know, I think it was both perhaps a blessing and a curse. I think home rarely treats genius as it should. So I think that there were some some people who said, oh, Bell Hooks is home. Bell Hooks lives here. And then I think that once you're part of a community, I think many people, even still after her passing, there are many people in Kentucky who didn't know who she was. I think there are many people in Berea even that would say, oh, that's the lady that lives on that street. And they would see her at the thrift store or see her in the restaurant or see her at various places. And they had no idea that she was bell hooks in the ways. She spoke about wanting to be near her parents as they were aging. Beth Fagan. I think it was very important for her to begin the work of reconnecting in physical, tangible ways, not just making peace in her heart with her childhood, but being physically present for her parents as they grew older. I think she also was seeking to be in community with people in a more intimate way, in a way that may be hard in a bigger city. So as much as she missed the liveliness of the culture and the 
expansive food offerings of New York City. She definitely missed that. What I think she was really seeking was to build the beloved community. She wanted to be in Berea, Kentucky. She wanted to be in a small town in the state of her birth. She wanted to be close enough to her family that she could see them easily, but she wanted to be in a community where there was lively intellectual conversation, where she could be around people who were interested in reading her work and discussing it, who were interested in reading books in general and discussing them. You know, she wanted to be able to, to go for walks and see greenery and run into her neighbors at the thrift store, which I did multiple times. I think coming home to Kentucky for her was a kind of full circle. And she wrote about how in her book, Belonging, she wrote about how if one is to live an intentional life, one must be intentional about dying as well. She wrote and spoke openly about dying. She wasn't afraid of it. And I think that she wanted people not to be afraid of it either to talk with her about it. She was prepared to die. She wasn't scared. And that goes all the way back to her childhood. She wrote about that in Bone Black, about how she saw people toward the end of their life when she was little and then dying and realizing there was nothing to fear from death. And that realization, I think, she carried with her her whole life. So returning to Kentucky was a way of facing her mortality because I think she expected to live out her days and to die there. So in a way, it was courageous. Here was a woman who was smack dab in the village in New York for so long, um, had lived in so many places, New Haven, you know, Palo Alto, Manhattan. But for some reason, there was a voice within her that was telling her that she needed to come home come back to Kentucky. And while you couldn't go back, she couldn't go back to Hopkinsville. She just uh, was drawn to Kentucky and found Berea and thought that that was the place. And I think she was ambivalent about those decisions. I think the divided heart is a really strong human commonality. I don't know if it's a universality, but it's strong particularly as we look back on our lives about the decisions that we've made and that we've resisted or avoided. And, and we talked a lot about that. Always, it was the topic for a Friday conversation. She was always looking for that place. I hope she found it. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing, Serious writers thrive with one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies, or travel to Paris for short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. And now we're back with Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. Just as Bell was known to be an incisive cultural critic, she also loved to engage with and enjoy various aspects of culture. Her friendships were precious to her. And I think that there was a sort of separation for her between, you know, people who sort of bowed down in a particular way to her because she was the bell hooks and people that, you know, she could say, girl, will you bring me some ice cream when you drop by? Or can you stop and get me some fast food or whatever it was that she wanted, which she had a lot of people who did that. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't special in that way, but I was among her friends in that way. I made her a lot of food over the years. Uh, she loved certain dishes when I made one dish called Grünkohl. She would call me up and say, bring me some Grünkohl. And it's a German dish. My husband is from Germany. And it has kale and potatoes and sausages. But oh my goodness, Belle loved that dish. Or she loved different soups that I made or salads. My husband makes smoothies. She would request his smoothies. 
And it became our practice for me to go to Berea Coffee and Tea, also known as BC and Tea, and get Belle her favorite drink, which was a Breva Latte. And Adam, the owner of BC and Tea, was the only one who knew how to make it exactly the way Belle liked it. So I would get Adam to make a Bell Hooks Breva Latte. And often I would get her a piece of pecan pie because she loved his pecan pie. And yeah, we would drink our coffee and she would eat her pie and we would talk for hours. The Institute was her way of bringing friends and acquaintances that she made. Some were notable people like Gloria Steinem or Laverne Cox or Emma Watson. Others were less well-known whom she had met and thought they were doing interesting work and she brought them to. One of the things she always liked to do though is to bring them out to our house. Um, She liked my cooking and uh, she liked our home and she, she felt welcome here always. And so, you know, we would bring Gloria or Laverne or Emma out for dinner and we would make sure that we had the food that she wanted and shuttling people out here. So those were good projects. And so I would usually see her every Friday when I was when I could or when I was in town and we would gather for over lunchtime. Usually we would go out to lunch. I would take her out to lunch because she loved food and could cook, but rarely did. So she liked to get out and eat. And then when her health declined, we would take food to her or I would have her out to our house for dinner or if I were cooking, grilling a steak or something, she loved red meat. I would always grill an extra steak and take it to her. She loved those and she talked about those. One of the interesting things that I, I think I've said elsewhere, when I would take her out to lunch, we, she liked to go to the Artisan Center in Berea. And so we would go out there and, you know, this would attract tourists or people on the interstate who are not from Kentucky. And she would find the biggest, burliest, white male, usually older, maybe about her age, who'd probably, you know, likely never been approached or touched or hugged uh, by a Black person. And she would just kind of go up to them and wrap her arm around their waist or something in just a really loving but completely disarming way. And it would be so funny to see the look on these men's faces when this black woman would come up and say, you all here for lunch? I love that. You know, I love the catfish here. It's really good today. So, or something like that, just hospitable, just intentionally disarming. In the responses and conversations that we've had with people, for instance, Silas House told an experience he had with her that I'd never heard before. And he said they went to a restaurant. And of course, she was the only African-American in the restaurant. Yeah, one time in particular, I remember my husband, Jason, and I, we had been out with Bill running around and she said she was getting hungry. So she wanted to go to this little country restaurant. It was sort of like a local, you know, it was like a meat and three place. We have like a, you know, meatloaf, mashed potatoes and corn or whatever. And so we went in and it was, it was early in the day, like, I don't know, three or four o'clock, sort of early to eat supper, but it was country people eat early. And so it was full of like construction workers and farmers. And there were a few families in there with little kids and stuff, but it was mostly like working men in their work clothes. And so we went in and went to get a, See, but Belle went around and just, she touched everybody. She would put her hand on their shoulder or on their arm or whatever. And I could hear her like she was talking to people about cars. She was talking to this bunch of men about, you know, she was wanting to trade a car and getting their feedback on things like that. And then she talked to somebody else, you know, about, she loved to go uh, Goodwill shopping, like to thrift stores and stuff. And she was talking to somebody else about that. You know, just small talk and sort of small talk that I grew up hearing amongst country people. So anyway, finally, eventually she came to sit down with us. And I said, well, Lord, you know everybody in here. She said, I don't know one of these people. 
And I just sort of laughed, and she said, I just wanted to make sure that they all had to speak to a black woman today. And so I just thought it was, you know, it was a beautiful, fierce thing. It goes back to what I think about the personal as political. You know, for her to move through that restaurant in that way, and it was sort of a political act to say, you know, I'm here and I'm not going to be erased. I'm not going to be overlooked. But also in a way that they really, you know, people connected with her in those conversations. Often we ate together. She was at our house eating supper. Or if I went to her house, I would take food. You know, we would make tea and we would eat sweets. Belle really liked that I cooked I cooked a lot of country foods. And we sort of grew up eating similar food, you know. Belle really counted herself as an Appalachian, as a country person, as a person from the hills. She talked a lot about that. And I think she found a lot of comfort in that sort of food and that sort of food culture. The food that I cooked sort of reminded her of her childhood. And um, she had a soft place in her heart for that. My husband makes incredible deviled eggs, and she always said that he made the best deviled eggs she'd ever eaten. She loved those. Just love being around, you know, foodie cultures. And, yeah, so it was, you know, there it, there were limited choices, <laughs> um, <laughs> to, say, to say the least. But she found the places that she liked and enjoyed. You know, the farm store would have some things that she liked. And May's Place, you know, um, yeah, Noodle Nirvana. And uh, Belle was a foodie. Um, she liked my food. I cooked. And, um, you know, some, when I had time, especially as I became an administrator, it got harder for me to cook for her. But um, when I would cook and my husband would cook out, we'd always you know, take her some of her favorite things, which were like, you know, hot dogs from the grill and chicken and my baked beans she loved and my sweet potato pie and macaroni and cheese. We started, yeah, going out like once a week and then I'd come by her house and we just, we just sit and talk, you know, for hours and hours and hours. So, and she always sort of had appointments for people. So people knew like, this is my Linda time and this is my, you know, my Chad time and this is my, like everybody knew. So it was sort of like a revolving door, but everybody knew when, oh, here's Linda, it's time for me to go. Oh, here's, here's this next person. It's time for me to go. And she'd be pretty firm usually sometimes she'll let she let another person kind of hang around but she really liked to be with a person to be present with that person when she was with them so yeah I came to appreciate that one incident where we were all home and we were looking at must have been or she may even have been visiting me in my home in Michigan and we were looking at sitcom or something. And she cannot just look at TV without thinking and critiquing and commenting. And and I once said to her, why can't we just look at the show? Because she can't turn it off. And so while you think that this is just grand, sometimes it was a burden, I think to always be thinking. And I just thought, why can't you just look at the picture and enjoy it? It's it's not going to happen, which may be one of the reasons why she didn't have TV. <laughs> because she just couldn't have an idle mind. And then in the afternoon, she tended to uh, kind of sack out on the couch. And uh, she loved her couches. And... Um, she would read, as she would say, a trashy mystery. She loved trashy mysteries. And she would um, either go to the used bookstore or people would go to the used bookstore for her and get her trashy mysteries. And she would read one or two a day. And then she'd also read a more, you know, an interesting book or a scholarly book or uh, something provocative that she would like to talk about. So she had this, you know, she was, Belle was really highbrow and lowbrow. And it was so interesting as a result of that combination. I mean, she could just sear your brain with uh, provocative, stimulating, wise, challenging 
thoughts and perspectives and interpretations. But she could also talk about this, you know, kind of trashy mystery that she was reading too. We shared a great love for the director, the Spanish director, Almodovar. And so the movie I remember the most seeing with her is Almodovar's film, The Skin I'm In. And um, it was a really controversial film at the time, a very violent and sexual film. And to hear her talk about it was just like a master course in cinema. You know, I mean, she was she was a film critic and a pop culture critic and a public intellectual. She just was so intelligent. I, I mean, I truly believe she was a genius. You know, to go see a movie with her and then just go across the street and sit at a restaurant for a little while and have a glass of wine and hear her talk about it was just one of the best movie-going experiences of my life was that experience of hearing her dissect the film afterwards. She was totally silent when she watched a movie. You know, she never spoke the entire time, which I appreciate because I don't like it when people talk during a movie either. But as soon as the movie was over, she could talk for hours about it and, and had been observing it incredibly closely. When I think about film, I think of the time we took her, she wanted to go to a movie and so we took her and she insisted on seeing Wonder Woman. And, you know, I kind of thought to myself, oh gosh, I've read these reviews. Interesting, are you, Belle, are you sure you want to go see Wonder Woman? Yes, I, I do want to go. And so we took her to Wonder Woman. And so it was a long, as, as I remember, it was a long movie. And so midway through the movie, I had to get up and go to quickly to the bathroom. And as I was walking and she wanted to sit on the aisle, and as I was kind of stepping in front of her in a very loud, high-pitched voice, she says something like, oh my God, how long is this movie? I kind of whispered in her ear, giggling. I said, well, Belle, you wanted to come. She's like, oh, I know, I know. It's my And so I thought I got to get out. I got to keep going because she's, you know, going to disturb people in the movie. So after the movie, and, you know, our whole complaint was that, as I recall, the women were, was it a feminist movie? When, could it be a feminist movie when the women seem to be just acting like men? And she said, okay, I, I'm sorry. I'm never ever going to pick out the movie again. You are going to pick out the movie next time. The most creative time of Bell's life, which was many decades. But when she was very critical of uh, Beyonce, and I, I do think unfairly so myself, I differed with Bell about it. But it was it was just Bell. I mean, that she had her position about capitalism, objectification of the black woman's body, et cetera, et cetera. I did say to her, you know, you're not you haven't seen what Beyonce is fully doing. You know, she really has a complicated presentation and it's all over social media and you're not in social media. So but at that point, I had no effect. And in the end. This seems to be a little piece of history that's just been covered over. She was canceled in, you know, really. And then it's not that long after that she dies. Sometimes we, we kind of like danced around her living room or talked a lot about music. Damaris B. Hill. And many times I went to Belle's house with vinyl and a record player. And her and her sister, Valerie Watkins, would tell me everything they knew about caring for vinyl records and would make requests and tell me about taking care of needles and things that I wasn't very proficient because this was a technology that kind of grew up with me. So I kind of grew out of it. But I love the warm texture of the tones that come from vinyl as opposed from the flat and um, unlayered textures that come out of digital music. You can hear the sound being built into the vinyl, right? Whereas a digital recording, the, the sound is, um, I call it flat, but what I mean is condensed and pressed. 
And so the nuances of tone and timbre are, are sometimes re reduced. And it's it's not the same type of um, relationship with the music for me. And I think Belle felt that way too. You know, Belle greatly appreciated all art forms and music was just one of them. She liked Jackie Wilson. That's That was her request. We both like old school R&B. So I, I, I do have, you know, this one really great memory of Belle when um, Jackie Wilson's Your Love Has Lifted Me Higher came on the radio and we were in the car and she literally got out of the car and started dancing. You know, turn it up, Linda. <laughs> Oh, it was just, yeah. So she could, she she just would have these moments of joy and ecstasy, and it was really beautiful. Next time on Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond. Bell was courageous um, with her brain all the time. And that to me was the source of our friendship because there's nothing that I love better than really thinking and then trying to do something with it, you know? And that's why in this moment, like when people were saying to me, so Zila, what do we do? How do we, how do we respond in this post-row world? You know, that's why, you know, there were these ways of just some of the same kinds of questions that came up so many years ago for different reasons. I mean, how do you come together with that? And so for, for Belle, the, you know, the courage was, she really didn't worry what, what the response would be, and even if she might be wrong. And you do have to be willing to be wrong in order to find out if you can be right. Bell Hooks, Becoming, Being, Beyond, a Think Humanities podcast miniseries, hosted by Katie Cross Gibson and Bill Goodman, written by me. Katie Cross Gibson. Produced by Kentucky Humanities in conjunction with Dynamics Productions of Lexington, Kentucky. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities. 